Grace, mercy, and peace to you in the name of God our Father. Amen. You know, we've been in the middle of this sermon series on finding lasting happiness. We've entitled it, Turning Your Frown Upside Down. And my prayer as we've gone through this is that you've enjoyed it, but maybe even more so that you've been challenged by it. I think one of our quests in life is to find more happiness, to be more happy more of the time, right? There's a whole industry giving you happy pills and stuff like that. I mean, and so trying to find this lasting happiness from God instead of from medication seems to be preferable. And so if you're struggling in this area of your life, my encouragement is that you would not just hear today's message, but that you would go through the ones that we've already preached and, and work on some of these things that God says, remove you from the equation so that you can experience more and more happiness in life. So this morning I'm going to start off with a bold statement. We'll see if you agree with it. Americans are increasingly concerned with purity. Show of hands on how many agree with that. Oh yeah, I'm going to change your mind in a second, all right? We want to drink pure water, right? And we want to breathe pure air, right? And we want to eat pure or whole foods, right? Whole industries going on with this. There, I read about there was a company that will, from fees ranging from $3,000 to $15,000, come to do an analysis on your house on why your house stinks so that they can help you breathe more and more pure air. Another article said last year that Americans spent over a half billion dollars on water purifiers. And there's a whole industry on whole foods today, which are better than the other kind of foods that we have. And yet as important as clean air is, and pure water is, and pure food is, there's a sense of purity that Americans have tended to overlook. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. In Matthew 5, 8, which is Jesus' sermon to us on how to find lasting happiness, we find it in something we call the Beatitudes. In verse 8, he gives us this next idea, the sixth, sixth idea of how to be more happy in life. And he begins this way. Happy or blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. What Jesus is saying here, ultimately, is that happiness is a heart condition. And we've looked at that over and over. It's not what goes inside of you, what you breathe, what you eat, what you drink. It's what comes out of you in terms of your actions, in terms of your words. In other words, happiness is something that always comes from the inside out. So what does pure in heart mean? If you were to think about that just a little bit, let me give you some definitions. It means, number one, that you have unmixed motives, that you're a person of integrity, it means that you don't say one thing and act a completely other, a, a different way. And, and that's the kind of the joke on, on, uh, about church people sometimes is you act one way on Sunday morning and then you act a totally different way on Monday morning, right? Or, or even Sunday afternoon in the parking lot, just depending, right? And so are you the same on the inside as you are on the outside? Are you the same on Sunday as you are on Monday? It means that your motives are true, and this is all important because God is concerned with why we do things just as much as he's concerned with what we do. He's concerned with our motives. In Matthew 6, 1, which is a whole chapter on this, he says, Be careful not to parade your good deeds before others to attract their notice, or you will lose all your reward from your Father in heaven. So let me ask you, is it possible to do good things with the wrong motives? Sure, right? Is it possible to be outwardly religious and inwardly a mess? Absolutely. We met people like that. Sometimes we are people like that, right? So Jesus is saying here that happiness comes when you are the same on the inside as you are on the outside. 
You know, what's in, I'll just I'll give you a confession today. When I was first in ministry, they, they go to great lengths at seminary to say, you need to be above reproach in all you, that you do. And, and people kind of, you know, when I was first in ministry, they kind of would put you on this pedestal because you're a pastor, you know? And, and so at the very beginning of my ministry, I struggled at being me. Can, can you kind of get that? Like, I, I was playing the role of pastor, but I was not really comfortable in that role because it was somewhat different from who I was. Not that I wasn't a, a decent person, it's just, you know, I, I wasn't all that the people thought maybe I was. I remember one time I, I apologized to a lady and she said, I didn't know pastors apologized. And I said, well, this one does <laughs> because, you know, I, I make mistakes, right? And so as I've gone through in ministry, one of my goals has always been to be more and more me. Does that make sense? so that I don't have to pretend to be something else or, or to pretend to be something that I'm not. And so get to a point where what you see is what you get, which is why I'm not all polished sometimes when I'm talking or, or, or correct in some of the words I use or whatever it might be. I'm just trying to be me so that I can get Jesus' words across in the best possible way. Again, Jesus says happiness comes when you're the same on the inside as you are on the outside. And my prayer for you is that more and more you would seek to just be you, whether it be Sunday morning or Monday morning or wherever you are. And so again, this pure of heart means that you're a person of integrity. You have unmixed motives. Jesus said this was so important that he was going to spend the next entire chapter on this, chapter 6. So we're in chapter 5, listening to the Beatitudes on how to be happy. The next chapter, he goes the whole chapter talking about this very thing. And in it, Jesus says there's three steps that I want to give you this morning that help you be pure of heart. And the first step or thing that Jesus gives us is this, essentially this. You need to remember that God sees everything. I think we intellectually know that, but I don't know that we actually believe it, trust it, understand it, so that it, I don't know, helps our behavior. There's studies that say 80% of the males in our country are addicted to porn. Some of those males are Christian, and if they realize that Jesus was with them, wouldn't that change some of that percentage? It would seem so. Key phrase in Matthew 6 is this, your father sees what is done in secret. Kind of makes that example come out in a whole different way. In other words, you can either be super cool or, and this reality of this can either be super cool or super scary, depending, right? But he's saying nothing is secret from God. Nothing is ever a surprise to God. Now, I want you to think about that for a little bit. Does it ever bother you knowing that God sees everything in your life? Because I think if we're honest just a little bit, it sometimes bothers us a little bit, right? There, there's plenty of things in my past that if I could choose, I, I'd probably have rather kept secret from God because I'm embarrassed about them because I can't believe I did them because I, I, I just, you know, we're all sinful, right? And it would just be better if, if God didn't have to know those things, and yet he does. The reality is that God says he knows everything about us, and here's part of the remarkableness of God, and yet he still loves us. And then again, that can be an either amazing comfort that he sees everything, or it can be absolutely terrifying because of what we tend to pursue, again, depending. And the crazy thing is I meet a lot of people today that don't seem to either understand this truth or they just simply don't believe this truth. And as a result, I think they're going through life either fooling God or that God doesn't care. As an example, have you ever been in the midst of a temptation and heard this line from Satan? 
go ahead. Nobody will ever find out. Huh? Those words seem familiar to you? Absolutely. It's one of Satan's favorite ways to mess with us. But the reality is that there's somebody who already knows it's already there because again, and this is from scripture, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So it's just saying here that God knows everything. And if God knows everything, then I might as well have a pure heart, right? I mean, rather than trying to fake it all the time, rather than trying to fool God, because while I may fool others, I don't fool God. And while I may even fool myself, God clearly sees. So I might as well come clean, repent if need be, and just own it. Because when we do, there's another amazing truth that sort of sets itself forward, and that's this. That God knows everything that I'm going to do in the future, but he still loves me today. Hard to comprehend, isn't it? You look back and you think of all the things he's forgiven you for. You look at the present and think of all the things that you're doing. Can't even imagine the train wreck you're going to be in the future. And yet God loves you. And God, in the midst of that, sent his son to die for you so that you could have forgiveness so that you could cling to him and receive that forgiveness and that life and that heaven. Even in the midst of our brokenness, Scripture tells us that God loves. After we have that reality of that remembrance going on, then he says, okay, with, with that as a kind of a backdrop, it's, you need to review your motives, right? This is where I do an honest evaluation of why I do what I do. In Proverbs 24, verse 21, it says this, God knows and judges your motives. He keeps watch over you. He knows. He rewards you according to what you do. In other words, God says that a reward is based on not just what we do, but why we do it. In Matthew 6, Jesus gives three examples as he goes through this chapter. He uses prayer, he uses giving, he uses fasting. Three amazingly good things, but there are also things that you can do, right, in the wrong way and with the wrong motives. Simply put, when you desire is not to glorify God, but to glorify yourself, then you have a heart problem. When your desire is to not glorify God, but to lift up yourself, as my buddy would say, you're doing it wrong, right? So Jesus says this all the way through Matthew 6. He says, don't give, don't pray, don't fast so that you look holy, but do those things instead to connect you to Jesus, to show him your love, to say, you're first in my life. And this goes right in the face of that Sunday morning person who's different on Monday morning, right? You play the act on Sunday, so what? So that you look holy, so that you look good, so that people go, oh yeah, they fit here. Yeah, they're not, must not be broken at all. And then you go and let your hair down on Monday and act in a totally different way. Jesus says, don't do those things to look holy. Do those things to connect to Jesus. Going to church is obedience for sure, but, but listening to what he might have to share with you in the sermon or in the liturgy or through the songs, that's why he wants you here. Now, the opposite of pure heart certainly then would be being a hypocrite. And Jesus talks about the Pharisees as hypocrites because they loved the praise of men more than they did the praise of God. And so he was saying, then that's what they're only going to get, the praise of men. But again, God sees the heart. And so Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. He says, we do not aim to please others, but to please God, who knows us through and through. And so ask yourself this question. Is it, I think maybe the most important question I'll ask you this morning. Who do you want to please the most? 
I actually think it's a great question because the answer to that question actually shows you the condition of your heart. If you want to praise or the praise of other people most, then that's what you'll get, and that's what you'll focus on. But then remember, that's all you'll get because, again, God sees the heart. And so we remember that God sees everything that I do, that I can't fake it, that I can't fool him. And if we accept that truth as our reality, then we can, just be, we can just relax and be us. And then what you see is what you get. And we don't have to try so hard to be perfect. We can just be us, a broken person that needs the forgiveness of God. And that's a good thing because phoniness leads to unhappiness. There's a lot of stress in ministry, especially for these guys just coming out because they're trying to be something they're not. It's when they can just own who they are, a sinner in need of repentance or in need of forgiveness, that they're just like everybody else, that they're leading people toward Jesus, then they can rejoice in the ministry. This certainly doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you're transparent. It means you can be you. It means a lot of the stress can go away. And then God says, after you've reviewed your motives, he says, then as you look at them, sometimes you need to realign your priorities if you want to be pure in heart. And so in Exodus 20, verse 3, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment stuff. So God's saying, in other words, I want top place in your life. If I'm, I'm not going to play second fiddle to anybody, I'm not going to have any rivals. And so whether it's your career, your husband, your wife, your hobbies, anything else, I want first place in your life. And God says that to us. And you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had to explain why God can say that. But you know, you say that to our culture today, and they're like, well, God seems so mean. I mean, why is he, why is he always telling us what to do? You know, well, why does he always have these things that he wants us to follow? He makes life so hard. Do you really think he thinks, cares about any of this stuff anyway, as a friend of mine said. So I want to just give you a little perspective of why God asked us to do this. God, we know from scriptures, created the heavens and the earth. He created us to love us. He put us on this earth, and he just asked us one thing, follow me. Follow me. So we put him in this amazing garden, and what did Adam and Eve do? They rebelled against him. And he should have just killed them there, right? That's what he said he could do, but he said, instead, I'm just going to kick you out of the garden. You're going to die now. That was my promise. But ever since we've had original sin... But still, they had Adam and Eve, and they loved the Lord. But as the descendants started coming, more and more rejected the Lord, rebelled against the Lord, did everything they could to defy the Lord. And all the way through Scripture, the one thing that you understand is God hates that rebellion, that disobedience, that sin, right? He hates it. It's why our relationship with God was so complicated, so destroyed, that we, there's no way we could go to heaven. And so God looked down on this creation that he made, the people that he loved that were just destroying themselves. And he says, I've got to come up with a plan B. And so he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for us that through his death, there would be another way for people to come to him. And he didn't ask us to climb to the top of this amazing mountain or defeat this amazing army that was coming against us. He just asked us to believe, to trust that his son Jesus, this gift that he gave us, was given to forgive our sins and reconcile that relationship that was broken. He said, just follow my son. It's the easiest and hardest thing that you could ever imagine, this following Jesus. But can you see, after giving up his own son, while well, there's this continued rebellion against him, while well, that might, I don't know, wane on his, his patience. And so he talks about an end time. 
a time when he will judge the living, the believers, and the dead, the unbelievers, and he'll start all over. And so he asks us to put him first, like he did when he created us, like he did when he sent Jesus. I'm your God, and I love you, and if you follow me, your life will be better. You'll have a proper perspective as you walk through this place. And so he says, first commandment stuff, there shall be no other gods before me. And you start asking why? It's because he's God. And God, technically, if you want to have another God, these idols that he's always been talking about, is anything that you place in the first place in your life. And so you start asking this question, well, I don't know. Do I have anything else in the first place in my life? I mean, how do I figure that out? And there's actually a few things you can do to try to figure that out, a few tests, if you will. And one of them is to look at your activities. Ask yourself, where do I invest my time and my money? Bible says, don't pile up treasures on earth, but keep your treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, your heart will be there too. In other words, wherever you put your investment, that's where you put your heart. I can ask, what's first place in your life? And you'd say, the Lord is first place in my life. Just like on Confirmation Sunday, all these kids get up here and say, the Lord is first place in my life. I love Jesus the most. I mean, it's awesome and it's a fun thing to watch. And it's where they are in their faith walk. But if you let me look at your checkbook and your schedule, I could see pretty quickly what's actually first place in your life. Because regardless of what we say is first place in our life, where we spend our time and our money determines that first place. Because what? We always show what we truly trust by our actions, what we truly believe in by our actions. And that's why the purpose of tithing in Deuteronomy 14, God says, is to teach us to put him first place in our life. So that when I give my first 10% of money back to God, I remember that all of this came from him in the first place. The first part of my day, the first part of my money, the first part of my week, it goes to God. And it helps me remember that God needs to be first in every area of my life. Then you can look at your anxieties, things that you worry about. In fact, what is it that you worry about the most? You can tell a lot about a person by what they worry about. In Matthew 6, 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. If you'll go through all of Matthew 6, the five most common worries that man has are in this passage. In verse 24, finances. In verse 25, food. In verse 27, fitness. In verse 28, fashion. In verse 34, future. And so if you're worrying about any of these things, it means that God's not number one in your life. That you have misplaced your priority. And so you need to check out your activities and you need to check out your anxieties because worry indicates a wrong priority. Worry just says this, God, I think I'm in charge here, right? Because that's what worry is. It's an attempt to try to control the uncontrollable. We've got to be doing something, we think. And since we can't do anything to actually affect it, we're just going to worry a lot and stew over it and think about it a lot because maybe through worrying, somehow we can change the unchangeable. So do you worry about your finances instead of trusting God? Do you worry about fashion? God says, don't worry about your clothes. God says, anyway, you need to look at these things to see if your motives are right. And then there's an interesting one, too, that I came across. You look at your ambitions, because my goals, too, reveal the direction of my heart. Whatever the number one goal is of my life, the greatest ambition of my life, what's the most important to me in my life, by definition, is my God. In Matthew 6, 31 through 33, it says then this, don't worry about these things. 
This is what the pagans are always looking for. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. And so instead, set your heart first on his kingdom and his goodness, and all these things will come to you as a matter of course. There's a little phrase in this text that says this, always looking for. I think that's kind of a cool definition of ambition. So he says, don't always be looking for what everybody else is looking for. I think the problem today with a lot of Christians is that many believers have the exact same ambitions as unbelievers. There's no difference. Why? Because they bought into the culture. They bought into the system. So as a result, they have the very same tensions and same stresses and same headaches and same problems. But God says, set your heart first on doing what God wants you to do. And all these other things will be brought in as a matter of course. So Jesus says, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And being pure in heart then ultimately means this. It means, first of all, having continually a consciousness of God's presence in your life. A pure in heart person is conscious of the presence of God all the time, and that is a mark of maturity. The more mature you are, the more conscious you are that God is there, and the less conscious you are of other people when you're doing good. For example, an immature person, when he prays, is more worried about the people around them than they are God himself. And so when they're praying, they're thinking, boy, I hope they like this prayer. I hope I don't sound stupid. I hope that went okay. A mature person is just focused on pleasing God and connecting with him. The desire of every Christian's heart then is to be a pleasure to him, and that's what it means to be pure in heart. That you recognize God is your creator. That you recognize that Jesus is your savior. That you're so blown away and thankful for those things that your desire in life is to try to please him. It's not so much about pleasing us, and I know we live in a me culture, right? Very me-centric culture, but it's not about us. It's about him. See, happiness really boils down to this. Who do you want to please in your life? God says when you want to please other people, fine, try it, but you'll struggle. Why? Because you simply can't please everybody. Just about the time you get this side pleased, this side gets upset with you. It's just the way it works. But here's the cool part. You can please God. And you do that when you say, God, I want to do what you want me to do. Because I realize it's in my best interest because you love me. And I realize it will make me happier because I get myself out of it. And I realize that it's safer because you'll protect me from all these things. I realize that following you will make me happy. And, and wouldn't that simplify life? Reduce stress. I can't please everybody in the world, but I can please God. And I, when I please God, I can always know that it's the right thing. It simplifies life so much. The tension, the stress, the pressure goes way down. And so you say, God, make me more conscious that you're there all the time as I walk through life. Another thing that a pure in heart person, or a mark of a pure in heart person, is they're controlled by God's priority. He or she has his heart set on what it, God says is important. And for a refresher, I refer you to the Ten Commandments, where he kind of talks about that. In fact, we're going to do a very cool series on the Ten Commandments this summer, and it's awesome. And so I invite you to, to come to that. But, but what's the result of all this if you do these things? If you start trying to be an honest, transparent person of integrity with unmixed motives, what is the result? This is what the Scripture says. Jesus says, they will see God. In other words, the result of having unmixed motives of living for God no matter what is that you'll get to see God in your life and you'll get to see God in your circumstances and you'll get to see God one day in heaven. And just as you don't see too well with dirty glasses, you don't see God too well with a dirty heart. 
And so you've got to clean it up. And you start asking, well, how do I get a clean heart? How can I clean up my heart so that I can be happy? Because that's ultimately what I'm, I'm shooting for here. And here's the hard truth is the answer is that you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it, clean up your heart on your own. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to come to this earth to save you. So you ultimately need a heart specialist, and his name is Jesus. And he makes house calls, and he doesn't cost a thing, and he's never lost a patient, and he's a pro at heart transplants. And best of all, he doesn't just want to give you a new heart. He wants to give you a new life, a life where you're freed from the baggage of the past, a life where you're freed from the anxiety and the worry of the present, a life where you have a hope continually in heaven and on and on. And the amazing thing is he's waiting for, all he's waiting for is the go-ahead. He's just waiting for you to put your trust in him, to humble yourself, to repent. And then he says, I'll give you everything. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new outlook. I'll give you a new life. I'll give you a new start. But it starts with allowing what Jesus did so many years ago on the cross to start affecting your insides today. Where we come to and say, okay, God, I need you. Just think about that phrase, I need you. It's a confession of humility that I can't do it all. It's a confession of need that I, I, I need you to come into my life. It's saying you're real by very, just by the very prayer that you're going to him. It's saying that you're able. Humble yourself and cry out to him and say, I need you more because I can't do it. I'm just worrying all the time. I need you and your power and your forgiveness. I need you to do something awesome in my life, to strengthen me, to encourage me. I need you in every way on the inside of me because in the end, happiness, Jesus says, comes from the inside out. And it's nothing more, nothing less than a heart condition. And the healing of that heart has always begun and ended with Jesus. So cling to him. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray. Fathers, we go through this series. We thank you just for challenging us and I don't know, so much of our preconceived ideas or just maybe the modes that we've gotten into as we've gone through life, we've, we, we confess to you today that we have misplaced our priorities. We've got so consumed in the stuff of the world, so consumed in all this other random stuff that we, we've lost sight of you at times. And as a result, we find that we're very anxious and very worried and very stressed and sometimes even hopeless as we walk through life. Father, I, help us remember Help us remember just how amazing you are. Help us remember your promises that are given to give us courage and strength and hope. Let us remember your care for us and your love. And then help us, Lord, put you as more of a priority in our life. Your promises that will make our life simpler, easier, and better. So Father, today we pray Send your spirit into our hearts and claim us once again for Jesus. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen.